Excelsior Road, Ezendu Biha. Welcome to Crown the Biha Short Stories and Poetry for January 19th. Well, it's supposed to be January 19th, but due to a technical glitch, it's now January 20th, 2024. So I'm Terrence O'Donnell, your Irish skillet. Come in and sit down for a wee bit and listen to more stories and poems again this week. I've got four short stories and a poem for you today. I've got the second part of The Heart and Harvest. An amusing monster story, or, you know, or about a demon, I guess. Monster, demon, it's cute anyway. A Western love story, a poem about a beauty of po the beauty of poetry, and Robert J. Longpriest's eighth chapter from Sanctuary. So I've made a couple of small changes to the podcast this week. I've added in two a two-minute advertisement uh, to solicit donations for my work and tell you about my website after I read all of today's offerings. And I did this on the advice of some professional podcasters. I also shortened post messages with a new Irish blessing in both Gales and English. So stay tuned after the stories to learn more about what else I have to offer everyone beyond these stories and poems. So now a first story, as I mentioned, is going to be second part of The Heart and Harvest, a novelette in three parts. This was part two by Jonathan Sawyer. Hello, Mellorill. She stepped into the cavern and lasted only a moment on her feet before she slipped on the rocks. Good thing I'm only wearing my work trousers, she confirmed, wondering just how many times she had lost her balance on these rocks over the past months. Did you have a good week, Lady O? came a roar from the dark in the rear corner, followed by a quiet shiver. It's been quite cool outside these past few days. She nodded, guessing she he could see it even in the shadows of the cave. Autumn is nearly over. The snows will arrive soon. Malarut shivered and let out a forceful breath of discontent, igniting the candles on his chandelier. They were large and seemed unused. He must have found new ones, Lady O thought. Yet another winter in the cold. I have thought many times about journeying north to the warm shores beyond the great capital city. Lady O waited for her eyes to fully adjust to the candlelight before continuing further into the cave. She would not have a repeat of last week. By the way, I forgot to properly thank you last week for your stunning repairs to my dress. Mother didn't even notice. Indeed, upon returning home and feasting on that stew, Ladle had almost completely forgotten about her accident. That's wonderful, Mallory replied happily. I was worried you might get into trouble. She let out a guttural laugh. <laughs> I think I can take care of myself. Mallory raised a thick eyebrow. Well, I take care of you too, don't I? Which reminds me, she reached for her rucksack. I brought you some of my mother's stew, her best cooking today. She pulled out two large wooden bowls with their tops covered with wax leaves. If he thought the simple lunch of wheat bread and rattlebird spread delicious, then he was in for the marvel of a lifetime with the stew, she thought. Stew, my mother has made plenty, and we've been eating it all week. They won't notice these few bowlfuls missing. She watched as he leaned over the rickety table and accepted the balls from her with eager talons. He placed them onto the table and removed the leaf wrapping, inhaling deeply into one bowl. He held the breath for some time before exhaling. Stew, you say? Lady Elnada with a smile. I know now where you get your knack for cooking. Thank you very much. Leaning completely over the dwarf table, he lapped up the stew as daintily as he could with his tongue. Don't mention it, she laughed. His love of food seemed to be matched only by his love of adding to his collection of trinkets, which, she noticed, had nearly doubled in size from the previous week. 
Have both bowls. I already ate. He hesitated after she spoke, then nodded and moved on to the next helping of stew. Within mere seconds, both bowls lay devoid of their contents, and Malarut leaned back on his thick hind legs, making slurping sounds as he wiped his mouth clean with his tongue. Wonderful. Simply wonderful. It's fair payment for preparing my dress last week, Ladyl explained, sitting down at the table and pouring a flask of goat's milk into two mugs. It's the sturdiest dress in the kingdom now. Oh, I found some things the other day that I wanted to give you. He twisted his head this way and that, searching for something. I know I put it here somewhere, he muttered. Ladyl smiled as he fretted about his nook full of junk. In all honesty, that's all it was, junk. But he reveled in finding it, so she ignored the minor obsession. He pulled a small satchel from a pile of debris, some books, cloth trips, shiny baubles, and brought it back to the table, placing it in front of her. I found these while I was out roaming. I have no use for them, but you... Ladyl grabbed the satchel, a velvet pouch of dark red with two leather drawstrings. The satchel was heavy, and something tinny jingled inside. She lifted the pouch and dumped its contents onto the table. A smattering of gold and silver coins hopped and bounced along the table. What is this, Malarote? she asked, bewildered. There were easily a dozen or so golden tokens and four or five silver ones, all bearing the image of King Malaron III, the reigning monarch. Where did you get these? He smiled his toothy smile. You'd be surprised at what careless people drop on, on the caravan roads. He seemed to tune into her astonishment after a moment. Is it much? Much, she nearly screamed. I've never seen so many gold pieces in my life. Her breathing was labored, and she took a long moment to calm her heaving chest. The wealth that lay on the table before her very eyes was as much as her family would make in three years, and her mind could barely fathom the myriad uses the money would have for her family. Then something in her mind clicked, and she immediately felt shame for thinking so greedily. Her father would have been disappointed. I cannot take this. Malarut looked strangely at her. Why not? I don't need it. It's my gift to you. He pushed the empty satchel across the table with his long snout. I was unaware of its value, but knowing doesn't change the sentiment in which it was given. Lady frowned. Well, she would like nothing more than to accept the gift, both for her personal benefit and to appease Mallory's good intention wishes. She still regarded it as a hugely disproportionate gift. Besides, what would she do with that much money? More importantly, how would she explain it to her parents where the money came from? Slowly an answer emerged. She replaced the coins into the velvet satchel. Well, thank you so much. It's a wonderful gift. She leaned over the table and gave him a quick kiss on his snout. If his kind was able to blush, she was quite sure he was blushing presently. She sat back in her chair and took a sip of her milk, and Malarut followed her lead, swishing it between his teeth, considering its subtle flavors. Tonight is the harvest. At Festivore, we will celebrate the closing of the season, give thanks for our crops, and I'll be helping my mother lead the choir. His eyes widened slightly. That's wonderful news, he replied, and it sounds like quite an important honor. She smiled brightly. It is, and I wanted you to come see me. My next story is entitled The Lord of Gluttony, What Happens When a Summoning Goes Wrong and the Demon You Never Knew Existed Emerges from the Beyond by Violet Lively. And she published this in the Kraken Lore. My existence is nothing more than a deep slumber. For as long as time, I am tossing and turning in darkness, 
for a whole 2,628 minutes. As I roll in the darkness, a voice calls to me. It's some odd language I don't recognize at first, but it's calling from my essence, my very demonic, very evil, and very scary being. A human voice, delicate, feminine, delicious. It's a summoning. I grin as the words gain meaning. Was this my dream coming true? Will I be able to eat as much as I want? Taste all the deliciousness the world can offer? Or maybe just scare some human? That would be fun too. Although I don't want to miss out on the cakes. I go and peek, because I have no idea how a demon should act properly when summoned. For all 2,629 minutes, I was asleep. But now, it's time for me to be wakened. Some oddly dark pentagram with all kinds of organs laid before the woman on silver plates. Dark candles are lit all over the room, and I even spot a cat skull among the objects on the coffee table. Why would anyone summon me with these? Disgusting. Just disgusting. Then how am I here? I turn, still invisible to the human, and read the runes. There it is. A summoning spell, locking me inside its borders. A tight little circle, carefully crafted runes. Lord, that's me. I'm a lord. Of what? I squint, trying to read the smudge symbol, and then chuckle when I get it. The human tried to write the Lord of Glum, but instead she summoned me, the Lord of Gluttony. Bad for her. Oh, my eyes go wide as I spot her next mistake. She wanted to summon Lord Azraxel. Bad news. Very bad news. He is a scary and ancient demon. A shiver vibrates my wings as I think of him. She's lucky she misspelled it and got me instead, Arizal. But where is my offering? All these mistakes wouldn't be enough if there wasn't an offering just for me. Cat skull, chicken liver, pig heart, some other gooey stuff. But where is it? Where is my treat? A wide smile stretches on my lips as I spot it and I run my tongue over my razor-sharp teeth. Yummy! A piece of whipped cream stuck on hilt on a ceremonial knife. I leap, my wings opening to fly me to my target. The chanting stops, and I freeze mid-air, my tiny wings doing the best job to keep me still. I look at the woman to see if I can lick the whipped cream before she sends me back. I give up, she stands, taking the fancy knife with her. This shit isn't working. Narrowing my eyes, I land on top of a candle, Careful not to touch any of that gross thing all around. I'll have to do it the old-fashioned way. Just like that, she cleans up. Like for real. I jump around in circles as I watch her moves. First the offerings are gone. Then she puts away the silver plates and the odd cloth with weird demonic symbols. She puts out the candles, shivering slightly as her hand slides through my evilness. Is she stupid? I'm still here. Summoned in all my glory, even if she can't see me. I the Lord of Gluttony, and here, ready to take on the world. Just those pesky runes. Then she wipes them away, using a wet sponge. Is she really doing that? I tilt my head and watch her, a human female walking around and muttering some things. She's about to leave the room, leaving me here. How could she? Before she closes the door, I fly after her. No mortal can leave me like this. Not without giving my treat. I made my way up from the deepest of darkness for the first time in my 2,628 minutes of existence, so I need my price. I halt in the other room. Shiny white and metal surfaces cover everything with the most delicious aroma lingering in the air. Sweet sugar, honey, chocolate, fruits of all kinds, freshly baked sponge cake. My mouth waters and I swallow as my lips stretch into an ear-to-ear -ear grin. She turns on some earthly device, 
and a man's voice speaks from it. More music. I jump back and hiss. Not that she can hear it, but the rectangular box is scary, even for somebody as mighty as I am. And now, one of your favorites, Dance the Night from Dua Lipa, says the man locked in the odd box. Then, after some rhythmic music, a woman starts to sing in the box. I inch closer, sniffing the air to make sure it wouldn't hurt me, my tail tapping away at the beat. It's only some device humans are so fond of. The human sings along, so I sneak around to discover the room. There's a huge bag of flour, eggs, and butter. Boring stuff. But I follow my nose onto the counter, and my heart beats faster. Cake! A real, deliciously frosted cake. I lick the icing, and the sugary pinkness explodes on my tongue. I moan and take a full bite of the cake, munching happily and moving along with the song. Watch me dance. Dance the night away. My heart could be burning, but you won't see it on my face. Watch me dance, dance the night away. Uh Uh-huh. I still keep the party running, not one hair out of place. Dance, dance, I hum as I stuff my face and roll in the cake. This is the best day of my life. With my eyes closed, I wiggle, lying on my back, covered in icing and cream, and lick my paws. A high-pitched scream echoes in the room, and I jump onto my feet, looking straight into the woman's eyes. Looks like I forgot to stay invisible. The icing is dripping from the tube she's holding, and I stuck my tongue out to lick it off. She screams again and hits my head with a tray. What are you? I blink as I rub my head, checking for a bump, and quickly gather myself and puff out a cloud of purple smoke. I am Arizal, the Lord of Gluttony, I say with my best spooky voice, gazing through the purple cloud and letting my tiny teeth show. Fear me, human. She tilts her head as she steps closer. You're cute, she rubs my chin. What are you? My eyes flutter, and I lean into her touch for a moment before I shake my head and stomp. I just said it. I'm Arizal, the Lord of Gluttony. She chuckles. Are you a demon? What do I look like to you? I raise my chin, keeping my eyes on the sweet icing dripping from the tube. Well, you look like a purple fluffy cuteness with pink ears and a tail. Are you even an adult demon? I'm older than you can imagine, I puff out my chest. I'm 2,628,000 minutes old. Actually, 2,650,000 by now. Her lips are moving, but no sound comes out of her. She's probably frightened from my age. Good. She should be. How old are you? She points at me with the tube. In years. I lick the icing. Five. Because I can't resist the raspberry flavor deliciousness. I lick again. I'm five years old. Okay. But that doesn't mean I can't or won't hurt you. I'm a demon. She laughs and rubs my ears. Did I summon you? Yes. Consider yourself lucky I'm not Azraxal. He's really scary and ancient. How old is Azraxal exactly? Eight million four in years. Sixteen, I shrug. Why did you want to summon him anyway? She sighs and hand feeds me some marzipan flowers. My girlfriend left me, and she had the nerve to open her own confectionery business. I could deal with the heartbreak, but she stole half my clients, got a real shop, and left me with three dozen orders to do alone by the end of the week. She gestures at the cake I destroyed. That was supposed to be delivered today. I frown. But how does Ezraxal come into the picture? I thought he could do something to destroy her cakes. I gape at her and put my paws over my heart. Destroying cakes? No, that's never an option. She sobs quietly and wipes out her eyes. If I can't deliver these orders, I need to close for good. It's impossible. So taking her dad with me sounded like a good plan. But I can help, I narrow my eyes, for a price, of course.
You can't, Hulk glitters in her teary eyes. Only if you never send me back and give me offerings ten times a day. You mean cake? I mean sweets, anything with sugar, cakes, creams, candy, chocolate, caramel, cookies. And how can you help me? It's easy. I look at the cake I ate and snap my fingers. A second later, it's whole again with extra decoration that wasn't even there. I'm the lord of gluttony, human. Just to convince her that she'll make the best decision of her life by letting me stay, I summon two more cakes, one blue with yellow and orange flowers, and one green with a rainbow and more flowers on top. And just because I like them, I added a dozen cupcakes. With a beaming smile, she stares at my doing. My name is Rose, she smiles at me. I'll feed you as long as you wish, and in return, you help me run my business. I munch on a marzipan flower I snatched away. Deal. My third story this week is entitled Stone Cold Heart, Western Short Story by Amy Potter. Emily Jordan stood in Lou Sullivan's kitchen and rolled out sugar cookie dough, using the rim of a glass to cut out the circles. She began thinking about the sheriff as a remedy for the boredom of, of the task. Gabriel Stone, elected sheriff of Yellow Dog, Colorado. Sheriff Gabriel Stone, Gabe. She loved his name. She loved him. She had to face the cold, hard facts of her case of infatuation. The emotions that raged inside of her were indicative of love. She had tried to rationalize them away. She had used logic to try and force herself from them. Yet there they were, pointless emotions, useless and unrealized. She loved him. And no matter how hard she tried, she could not stop loving him. Love, how irrational, especially since she had only known the man a month or less. Her love for him somehow made her feel worthless. He would never want her. Obviously, he had a penchant for the younger ladies, the beautiful, strong-willed women like Lou, her sister's eldest daughter, the editor of Yellow Dog's newspaper, or Ruby, the owner of the town's most prestigious drinking establishment, where the sheriff often went for a beer, a whiskey, or for Ruby's tender attentions. Emily dreaded allowing her fantasies to even wander in that direction. She had no right to be jealous of the man. She should thank God he did want a woman, at least once in a while. It meant all his parts were still in working order. Oh, Emily had been on the street that day of the horse race. She'd seen how he had looked at Ruby when she reached up and gave him her colors to wear in the big race at the mountain pass. She had watched Ruby tie the color ribbon to stone saddle. He'd been surprised, but not averse to her intentions. And Lou. It was terrible to be jealous of her own niece, 15 years younger. Why, Lou was probably 20 years younger than the sheriff, certainly young enough to be his daughter. But no one could doubt there was an attraction beneath their working relationship. Their friendship was growing every day. She shook her head to clear her thoughts from the path they were headed. Now don't you go wanting a man like that, she sternly said to herself. He could be killed at any moment. There you'd be at his grave, crying your heart out, unable to live without him. Just think of the benefits of unrequited love. Look at how God is protecting you. You can love him in your mind and in your fantasies as you lie in your lonely bed at night. And he'll never hurt you, never break your heart, never make you cry. She started crying at the thought. You're so stupid, she said aloud. Who's stupid? A man's voice asked from behind her. It was his voice. She had memorized his every inflection, so she immediately recognized the voice of Gabriel Stone. She quickly brushed her hands across her eyes to wipe away the tears, unknowingly coating her face with the white flour from the sugar cookies. Then she turned around. Why, Sheriff Stone, I didn't hear you come in. 
I guess you caught me talking to myself. She brushed her hands on her red plaid apron and left white streaks there, too. Stone stared at the sight before him. The widow Emily Jordan was elbow-deep in cookie dough, flour all over her face and the front of her apron. Her thick, wavy hair was tied up in a mass of tangled mahogany curls on top of her head, little wisps coming loose all around her neck. She was beautiful in the flickering light from the kerosene lamps on the kitchen table and counter she worked on. Quite a handsome woman, yet he knew she had no idea how comical she looked. He couldn't help himself. His handsome face broke into a big smile, and he laughed out loud, <laughs> a hearty laugh. I haven't heard a man laugh for a long time, she told him, looking down shyly and catching a glimpse of the flower on her apron. Guess I'm quite a picture. She smiled back at him as she realized her face probably looked like her apron, and she <laughs> laughed too. As a matter of fact, I haven't laughed for a long time myself, she said. Did I ever tell you I hate cooking? But I love to bake. She knew her nervousness at the sight of him was making her prattle on way too much. He took a big sniff of the air. Apples and cinnamon, he commented. Oh, she exclaimed, my pie. She spun around and grabbed the oven handle to open it, but it was hot as she jerked back with a yow. Stone rushed over and took her hand in his, looking it over carefully. He gently felt her red and palm, and she jerked away from his touch. It was not from pain, but from the thrill of it. But how could she explain that to him? that just the touch of his hand sent her blood racing and made her embarrassed at her own reaction. I don't think you got burned, he said. Here, he said as he grabbed a hand towel. I'll use this. She stepped back and watched him open the oven and retrieve her two apple pies. He quickly kicked the oven door closed with his knee. See how stupid I am, she told him. I can't remember anything anymore. I guess forgetfulness comes with age, he said. When he noticed the look she gave him, he knew he'd said the wrong thing. I mean, ma'am, that I'm getting so forgetful myself, I have to write things down, and then I forget to look at my notes. He smiled at her, hoping that eased her mind. She seemed overly sensitive about her age. For some reason, most women did. They either thought they were too young or too old in his limited experience. Thank God he wasn't like that. He was quite comfortable with who he was and how old he was. Well, except for needing glasses to read. That was a little disconcerting. Thank you, Sheriff, she said, interrupting his thoughts. You do that well. I've had to fend for myself for quite some time now. Had to or wanted to, she asked before she could stop herself. She held up her hand before he could reply. Please, you don't have to tell me. I shouldn't have asked. He smiled at her. I wasn't going to. Stone couldn't help but recall a portion of his past that he tried long and hard to put out of his memory. He had a real good friend from the war years who'd found a wonderful woman to marry. Then, ten years later, she had been taken captive out of revenge for something her husband had done during the war. He'd helped his friend track the kidnappers for several months, and when they found his wife dead, tortured, he'd seen his friend's heart broken and his life shattered. He vowed right then and there that he would never drag an innocent woman into danger. His expression became stern as he pointed his finger at her. And I don't ever want to hear you call yourself stupid again, Mrs. Jordan. Understand? She nodded and then noticed the merriment in his blue-blue eyes as she realized he was kidding around with her, so she smiled. Sheriff, the least I can do is offer you a piece of pie. She glanced at his beautiful features and noticed he was intently staring at her as if it was the first time he'd ever actually looked at her. I can't stay, he said, suddenly uncomfortable with his feelings. I was looking for Lou. When I saw she wasn't here, I was leaving when I thought I heard crying. I mean, I thought I heard something, he corrected. He seemed to understand she'd be embarrassed again if, if he knew she'd been crying. 
She's having dinner with Dr. Ramsey tonight at the hotel restaurant. Did you want me to give her a message, Sheriff Stone? No, I'll catch up with her tomorrow. So this is what you do when you have the house all to yourself, he asked with more than a little curiosity. I needed to get these pies baked for their church picnic tomorrow. If it were up to me, I'd be playing the piano, some of what Doc Ramsey calls my boring music. What kind is that? Old songs from the South, slow, passionate Irish folk songs about lost love and broken dreams. Ah, Stone said, the good old days. That brought another smile to her face, and he suddenly had an idea. Miss Jordan, why don't you let me finish these cookies? I'll put them in the oven while you get, well, the flour off you. And you can play me a couple of those boring songs. I'd like to hear you play the piano. It's like I told Ramsey when he showed me that newfangled recording machine. I like to see the piano player when she's playing. Emily nearly ran out the door, but she stopped in the doorway and turned back. I won't be long, Sheriff, she told him, and it was very difficult for her to keep from running up the stairs to her room. She quickly stripped and pulled on a pretty green dress that she'd been told had complimented her green eyes. She wiped the flower off her face and resisted the urge to put on a smattering of makeup. If the sheriff wanted that, he'd be at Ruby's. He might as well see her in her natural state. Glancing in the mirror, she became sad again, wishing she were more beautiful, slimmer, younger. If wishes were horses, she softly said to herself, then beggars would ride. She smiled and pulled her hair out of the clips that held it up. As she looked at her thick auburn tresses, she realized that was too much, as though she were inviting him to more than a piano recital. She grabbed a black velvet hair ribbon and quickly tied her hair back. Then she tried to contain her excitement and maintain her dignity as she returned to the kitchen. Sheriff, she called, but there was no answer. Mr. Stone, she asked as she entered the kitchen. The cookies were still on the table, unbaked, and Gabriel Stone was nowhere to be seen. There was a scribbled note on the table, a page torn from the sheriff's notebook. Something came up, and I had to leave. Sorry I missed the sad songs. Gabriel. She got a wry smile on her face as she clutched the note to her breast, a short, quickly written note that would be cherished for the rest of her life. Thank you, Lord, she said aloud as she once more turned to her sugar cookies. You have saved me from throwing myself at him and making a fool of myself when he rejected me. Thank you, God. The tears came easily now. And on the streets of Yellow Dog, Sheriff Gabriel Stone chastised himself for being such a coward when it came to a lady he respected and admired, maybe even could fall in love with. He ought to come right out and tell the lady he could never make her part of his life. It was too dangerous. He didn't want her to end up tortured or dead. And he didn't want his heart torn apart, shattered when it happened. He was supposed to be so brave and fearless, yet a woman like that could almost melt his stone-cold heart. As he crossed the still busy street, he decided to head to Ruby's to listen to the latest gossip. Maybe a whiskey would fortify the wall he'd built around his heart. Maybe it'd warm him up inside so he could get some sleep. Maybe then he could quit thinking of the temptation Emily Jordan had become. Maybe then he could quit thinking of what might have been. My next piece is a poem. It's called The Beauty of Poetry and subtitle writer by James William, published in my poetic style. Poetry at its finest should be raw and never bland. It should take you by the heart and refuse to hold your hand. It should make you think about life in a way you never have and leave you feeling breathless, perhaps sad or mad or glad. It should inspire you to think about the way that life appears, to seek out insecurities, 
and leave you streaming tears. It should touch your heart if what it says is true and leave you to question its intent like it was made for you. It should inspire a feeling from which you cannot hide and leave you with a memory that takes pride to strive inside. And lastly, I have the eighth chapter of Sanctuary uh, by Robert J. Lompre from Canada. And this is published through Life Through a Lens. Sanctuary, is it a submarine? Chapter 8, no, it's a flying saucer. The open space before Carrie took him by surprise. It was obvious he was in something which was in the lake. He could see fish and aquatic plants and stones of various sizes. Seats were placed by several of the windows. Turning to look to the center, Carrie saw a translucent tube reminded him of a see-through elevator. Is this a submarine of some sort, Dad? Not really, Dorian answered. It's our spaceship. You've heard about flying saucers. Well, this is what it is, a flying saucer. Carrie laughed at his father's joke. Seriously, Dad, why did you have this underwater observatory built? And when did you build it? Ben walked up to Carrie and put a hand on Carrie's shoulder. Your father is telling you the truth. This is a spaceship that most humans would call a flying saucer. This is how we got here. Carrie's eyes opened wide in disbelief. This is how you got here? Where the hell did you come from? Don't tell me that you're aliens. Ben simply nodded in confirmation. Carrie was speechless. Carl turned toward Dorian. This might take longer than you think, Dorian. Maybe we should leave this until later. Dorian shook his head in disagreement. No, now is the time to do this. No one will think twice about the four of us working late and dealing with the supplies. Carrie, Dorian said, you know how you never get sick? Well, that is because our biological systems are different. You didn't just get lucky when others around you got flus or colds or other contagious diseases or infections. You just said our, Carrie sputtered. Are you trying to say that I'm an alien as well? You are like Ben, Carl, and me, his father answered. And it isn't just your immune system that is different. You know how you never lose your tan, nor does it get any darker? Well, it has to do with our pigmentation. As well, your cuts always heal rather quickly in comparison to your friends or even your sister. That is another biological difference. I thought our color had to do with our First Nations ancestry, Carrie protested. I know, it was the easiest way to explain, to cover up the fact of our different complexion. But what about my sister? she even my sister? Of course she's your sister, Dorian said with a smile. But she gets sick, her cuts heal slower, and she is kind of whiter looking. She has her mother's genetic heritage. There are a lot of our genetics that are similar. And only those similarities were inherited by her from me. Carrie went silent. Nothing of what he had heard made any sense. Finally, he asked, Does Mom know anything about this? No, Carrie, she doesn't. However, it won't be long before I tell her the truth. Not long at all. So why now? Why not years ago? That's a different story for a different time, son. Suffice to say, the pandemic has thrown a wrench into our planning. Right now, it's time to head back to the cabin. I need you to keep quiet about what you have seen and learned here. This isn't the time to go public. Trust me, son. Carrie did trust his father. Though it was also confusing, he suspected his father hadn't lied to him. He nodded agreement as the four of them began the process of returning to the cabin, retreating back the way they had come. When they stopped to put their clothing back on, Carrie realized he had forgotten all about being nude the whole time they were in the flying saucer. With his clothes back on, he sensed that somehow in he and putting on his clothing, he had also put on camouflage, which would make him appear to be a normal human, 
not half alien. But what took you so long, Anne asked, when Carrie finally reappeared in the cabin. My dad had a lot for me to do, he answered. Did you miss me, he added. Anne responded with a poke to his ribs. She didn't miss him, but there was no way she was going to admit it. She relied on Carrie. She wouldn't have even been at the cabin if it wasn't for him. She didn't even know how to go back to her home, nor did she have her own transportation to make that happen. That realization had resulted in the poke to Carrie's ribs being more forceful than she intended. She hastily apologized while she pressed against him to hold him tight. Leah saw the two of them together and nodded her approval. Carrie was who Anne needed now. She had watched the two of them grow up as neighbors, almost always together over the years. It was hard not to tell Anne about what he had seen and what his dad had told him, but he trusted his father and kept what he had learned to, to himself. He hoped it wouldn't be too long until the truth would be told. He also knew it wouldn't take Anne long to figure out there was something she wasn't being told. He hated lying and, and knew saying nothing to her was just the same as lying, lying by omission. With those thoughts running around in his head, he heard his own acceptance of the impossible story his father had told him. Thinking about it, it seemed to make some kind of weird sense. I'm half alien, he thought with wonder. What does that even mean? Will it mean a future with Anne is out of the question? The thoughts both tortured and excited Carrie. He knew he had to talk to his father about it, and sooner rather than later. Carrie had gone to bed, but sleep stayed away as thoughts raced through his head. Jesse was about to get up and go to the kitchen for something to eat with a hope that food would change the channel in his head. He heard a faint knock on his door. He quickly got up and opened the door to see his father standing there. Dorian beckoned to his son to follow him, using body language. Carrie reached for his jeans and a t-shirt, slipping them on before silently stealing out of his room to follow his dad, gently closing the door behind himself. Dorian led Carrie to the room, which now housed the online learning center. There, he held what looked like a garage door opener. The faintest of hums told Carrie that something had been activated by the remote. And that's all I have for you this week as far as stories go. And as I said, coming up, I'm going to plug in my advertisement. Uh, it's fairly new. And my shortened post message here to get you to come back next week. So I will say slancha, and I'll talk to you guys next week. I want to take this time to ask for a donation of any amount to help me keep this podcast going, if you can. And to also explain how to find my website and what's inside when you arrive at the door. My podcast will remain free to subscribe to on all the major podcast apps at Substack for the first month and on my YouTube channel, Krana Biha. I have set up a donation link on Krana Biha Stories and Poetry at rss.com and a donation is paid on my website at www.kranabiha.com, all using PayPal for your security. Think of it as me passing my hat around to you at the end of my visit each week. If you like this podcast, please share it with everyone you know in your social circles as the writers I showcase in this podcast deserve all the exposure they can get. I created this podcast for them because I love to read their work and I believe it should be shared with the world. Now I want to explain how to find my website. Since this show is audio only, just type in www.cranna-beatha.com in your browser and search for it. The website domain name is Gaelic and may be a little hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. Then bookmark it if you like it. I also have the RSS feeder enabled, so if you like my blog posts, you can be notified whenever I post something new. Search for www.kranabiha.com in your RSS feeder and set it up. 
Users finding the website for the first time will reach the welcome page to learn a little bit what's inside. There you'll see the homepage link at the bottom of the page. On the homepage, you can learn a little more about what Crown and Beyond means for a little bit of Irish culture and a little bit more about me in general. On the menu bar at the top, there are links to all the pages in the website. The blog section where I post podcast newsletters, blog articles, stories and poems, and a drop-down podcast menu with links to both podcasts, a donations page, an ad page to purchase my published books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. Thank you for your patronage and support. Gora Mahagan, thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed the variety of stories and poems again this week. Maybe one of them might touch your heart a little. Disclosure for everyone, in order to read the complete stories and poems, you will need to sign up for subscription in Medium. If I see a link by the author on one of the stories to allow everyone to read it, I will let you know in the newsletters. Please return again next week for another episode of Cron de Bia Stories and Poetry. As a show to Kate, I want to continue to delight you with a story or poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Long life and fair health to you. Salfada a ghost Slancha to Coet. Slango Foil. Goodbye for now.